0: tonight on Arena Judy Collins speaks to us ahead of her appearance at Tradfest 2023 and we remember the late great Seamus Begley one is the text. You can tweet the programme at RTE Arena. Yesterday evening we heard the sad news that renowned Kerry musician and singer Seamus Begley had died. He was 73. He leaves behind... A musical legacy of the highest caliber. Best known as an accordionist and singer, and during a long career, he collaborated with Mary Black, Steve Cooney, and his siblings. Coming as he did from a family steeped in music and singing, a tradition handed down to them by their parents. In a statement today, President Michael D. Higgins said, "Seamus will be remembered as one of Ireland's finest accordion players, as well as a beautiful singer. Growing up in a family rich in traditional Irish music in Ballina in the West Kerry Gaelthacht, his recordings." And performances captured not only the music of his upbringing but also a knowledge of music far beyond these shores. Uh, I'm joined this evening by longtime friend of Seamus Begley's, Mairead Niweney who's in, in France at the moment and And I know the news came as, as quite a shock to you uh, in fact Mairead earlier yes. on.
1: We arrived at our destination last night and I got a A quick phone call from a friend and telling us the bad news, and we just sat there in shock for the rest of the evening. To be honest with you, all all of the band knew Seamus. Seamus actually has worked with the band and has travelled with us all over America and Japan. And uh, he's just such a loss, such a king of music, king of Kerry, king of ball in the book. You Mm. know, when I think of him, I think of this. A smile comes. On me because I'm I'm always thinking of the fun we had mm. and how much joy he brought to um, to, to a place when he when he'd come into a, a, a session he always brought such light and joy and fun and we all. Would leave better people because of him, you know. Uh,
0: And despite the fact that you're at at opposite ends of the island, uh, if you like yourself up in Donegal and Seamus obviously Mm -hmm. down in in Kerry, there was a huge connection, um,
1: particularly through
0: the skull, uh, skull heavy Frankie Kennedy. Frankie,
1: yes. Well, Frankie Kennedy and I knew knew Seamus very well, and of course, when Frankie passed away, Seamus was one of the first people to arrive at our um, home in Donegal and played and sang and really lifted our spirits in a way that was very, very beautiful and lifted me. And I knew that Frankie would have loved what himself and Steve Cooney did that day. They just came and sang all his beautiful songs. And it was so meaningful and so so honest and so uh, just he was a man of great integrity and great sensitivity. And everybody says, Oh, he was mad, but he had a great wishlert about him that I'll really, you know, I'll, I'll really miss. He was such a lovely, lovely person.
0: Just to explain what you said there again to me, Maria the Great. Wishlert. <laughs> wishlert
1: would be, uh, then you whistle, you know. Mm. Ah, I'm sure I'm saying it the wrong way. No, I hear you. you, I know what you're saying. (laughs) I hear the nobility about
0: him. It's precisely the way it is. Yes, it's nobility. That's it. That is the way to describe him. How would you describe his his voice? Because we can talk about his accordion and his voice. There's two aspects to his music for sure. How would you describe his voice and the way he sang, Mariette?
1: Well, his his voice was like an angel, you know. I, I read somewhere today where he went into a Shano's competition, and somebody said he was far too sweet to be a Shano singer. You know, I can't understand that because he every time he opened his mouth, he went like his his song would go to your heart, you know, because he just sang from his heart out, and he was such a musical, musical person. And then he played the recording at, at the opposite. Uh, end of the spectrum where it was all just the top notch joy and energy, you know. So he had this whole spectrum of music within him that, with, with great sensitivity at one hand and then another sense of joy and rhythm and immediacy in his music, you know.
0: And the last time we spoke, uh, quite recently, Maid, in fact, it was about the, the Radio on the Gaeilta, the documentary about the, the importance of Radio on the Gaeilta in the dissemination of traditional Irish music. And there was a big gathering at the end of that programme, I remember. A lot of the Begley clan within there, uh, a song by Maeve Begley song on yes. the day. W- was Seamus part of that? I can't remember whether he was or not. He
1: was. He was part of that. And actually, that was one of the last times I met Seamus. And I was looking over my text there um with him over the last few months, and just a few days ago, he sent me a happy new year, and mm. as we always do, and happy Christmas and telling me he was in hospital, but that he was on his way home, and it's hard to get rid of a bad thing <laughs> <said>. <laughs> so, so that was his sense of you know he had a great sense of humor, and we all were all kind of exchanging stories here all day about how funny he was, you know.
0: Yeah, because that that was one of the things Vesiga Radio and the Gil to Majin uh on Selo Yasagas Vla special to and uh in almost the Hame Shagasvita Saparchuk and Fresh and in everybody as part of that programme this morning on the Radio and the Galthoke. I don't think there was a person who came on who didn't break down into in into I of tears. I just
1: I thought I had so much to say and I, I and something overwhelmed me because his 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 person was with me at that stage, mm-hmm. and I, I felt such weakness and loss because I know, you know, the music scene, uh, traditional music, and song will never be the same without him.
0: And and the Begley the Begley family must be you know devastated today. Obviously, the the the, the broader musical family is is devastated, but if we think of Mary and and his sons and 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 his daughter Maeve who wrote that song that you sang as part of that documentary, there must be incredible sadness around the house today
1: They are just the most amazing family, like when you think of the amount of music that's come out of that family and their children and their children's children so uh, it's just an incredible heritage to to leave behind, you know and it'll continue and um, they're very strong people but very sensitive people they're very good people they're honest they should be cherished as as what they are they're our you know they're our heritage as well you know they actually reflect what Ireland should is all about you know the language the culture the dance the fun and the humanity really
0: Oh, what a lovely way to to remember Seamus uh, with those words, as you said on your your tweet your tweet today. Tomich krevish the the ye ga Seamus.
1: Tomich krevish that he can't change
0: Yeah, go go go! Thank you. August 19th, 2019, and 9:00 p.m. Thanks so much for being with us. Um cricknomage le haoir August the rainy two times at McCullough uh, do you have particular memories, memories around this particular song?
1: Uh, well, he was always good at at singing. He had so many songs, but this one in particular, I loved his version of it, and I loved the way he approached songs with a great sensitivity and knowledge and just uh, heart.
0: Well, mahagata No, he has. And that's Maria Adney there, remembering Seamus Begley, whose death took place yesterday evening. And let us listen to Tomshit Mukullah. <laughs>
1: Shan okay, the
0: slim have on on Tom Aur August Kilter, Mara Maridney Wayne Lane, August Yeshlov de Day, Judy Collins released her first album a full 61 years ago, an album of folk songs entitled A Maid of Constant Sorrow. Over the decades, she established herself as one of the supreme interpreters of some of the greatest songs from the American Songbook, including the Joni Mitchell classic, Both Sides Now, and, of course, Stephen Sondheim's hauntingly beautiful Send in the Clowns, which was included in Judy's 1975 album, Judith. Judith. But just under one year ago, in February 2022, Judy Collins released her very first album consisting of material written entirely by herself. And at the end of this month, she will return to Dublin to perform at Tradfest. And delighted that Judy has taken time out to speak with us in advance of her trip to this part of the world. This is actually, uh, Judy, your 29th studio album, Grammy-nominated for Best Folk Album last year. But uh, as I said, this is the first time that we've had an album that is entirely songs made up of songs written by, by yourself. Did something shift, or how did that decision, decision come about?
2: Well, it just it shifted into high gear. I have been writing songs. Hmm. For 60 years, and all of the ones that I've written and felt happy about have been in albums where I'd had, you know, shared time with other artists writing. But in 2016, I got much more serious about my songwriting. I had made an album with a, a, an American singer named Ari e. Hest, who's quite wonderful, and. We were nominated for our album, which was called Silver Skies Blue. It was the first time I'd been nominated for a Grammy in 40 years. (laughs) So I guess it gave me the inspiration. And once I was writing with him, I went back in a newfound emotional and uh, energetic way to focus on my own songs, which I did. So by the time the pandemic hit in 2020... I was ready and I started recording in 2019 and had a few more sessions and and finally Spellbound was put together. So I'm very very happy with the uh, <laughs> with
0: what happened. Yeah, and and in that period in 2016, I know you made a decision to write a poem every day for 90 days. Yes, I did. I suppose the relationship between a poem and the lyric for a song, you know, they're not that, they they potentially are not that far apart. Did some of those poems, have they made their way onto Spellbound in, in, in a similar or slightly different form?
2: Well, you have to, first of all, a poem and a lyric are two different mm. creatures, but I wrote the poetry because they would set off the idea, and quite, quite often I would actually be writing a schematic rhyming um, lyric, something that could turn into a, a lyric easily, and so that was what, I, I wound up writing poetry and lyric and alternating between one and the other, but it was the lyrics that made it on into the piano, Um, when I would sit down at the piano and put the lyric or the poetry Mm. in front of me and find out if I could find my way into a melody. And that's how it all happened. (laughs) So I'm thrilled with it. And I not only have the 12 songs that are on the album on Spellbound, but I've also continued, so I have a whole bunch of other songs that are going other places.
0: (laughs) It's, it's a wonderful title uh, for an album, even just as a, as a word, spellbound. It, it, it contains within it such magic. Maybe tell me a little bit about the title song and, and what was binding you, what was spellbinding you when you were writing this song?
2: Well, in 2016, I was in Honolulu again in Hawaii, and I started writing the poem, I can remember exactly where I was, on Honolulu in the hotel that looks back down from Diamond Head and back to town, so to speak. And I started writing this poem, which, which really had to do with my different um, visits to Hawaii, and partly the fact that when I was younger and still drinking, uh, it was a very kind of fractured visit to, <laughs> to Hawaii. But now, having been sober for 45 years, or at that point it was a a few fewer. Mm. It was a whole different view of both the islands and my own life. And that's what got into the song. And so Spellbound, I was able to sing it. It was finished and I recorded it here and then I went to Honolulu and I actually sang it at a concert I did that year. So it was wonderful to be able to sing it where I'd written it.
0: And, And this is the song that those people at that concert heard.
2: Windy day in Honolulu, looking out beyond the hills, memories and times of heartache, lays of lilies, daffodils, spellbound.
0: spellbound title track from the album of Judy Collins. Judy will be at uh, Tradfest towards the end of this month but she's joining us on the programme this evening to tell us about um, part of what she'll be doing at that visit to Ireland but also about that the, these wonderful songs. There's such a journey in that song uh, Judy from, you know, at, at the start of the poem when you're talking about Praying I could swim and soar, but dark dreams haunted sunlit days by the time we get to the end of the song you're you're you are soaring, you are sailing, you are spellbound 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 as that that word keeps repeating itself it kind of is is this a in some ways if you could put your life into a single song, this is the story
2: yeah, it is most definitely it just happened to be Honolulu but it's very much the story of my <laughs> my past, present and future life.
0: And that idea of, you know, the dark dreams and the fears, you know, it, was there always that sense? Did you have that sense back even in your early years that there were things that you wanted to do, but w- was it fear that was holding you back? You, you mentioned um, the, the difficulties with alcohol. Was that holding you back? Can you identify now a breakthrough point?
2: Well, I think that... I was not. I was not holding back. I was always going forward, but I was drinking. And you know, when you're drinking, you often wake up in the middle of the night and want to end it all. And that was happening from time to time, for a long time. I got sober in 1978, <clears throat> and um, but it was it was a long 20 years of drinking. Mm. So everything that I do, everything that I'm going to do, is dependent on the fact that I stopped drinking when I did, because my life really began then. It looked pretty good looking back. I had a lot of success. I had a lot of um, wonderful, extraordinary things that happened to me, but the alcohol was always in the way.
0: You 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 mentioned and you've spoken about you know uh, the first time I think it was that you decided you've written many songs of your own this album yes entirely your own material but it was it was Leonard Cohen a little nudge from Leonard Cohen that, that, <laughs> that kind of set you off um writing was it was since you asked your very first writing of your own material yes,
2: yes. since you have asked was this song that I wrote After he said to me, after I had recorded Suzanne in 1966, and he said to me, well, now you've made me famous, which is wonderful for both of us. (laughs) And then he said, I don't understand why you're writing, why you're not writing your own songs. And I had never written my own songs. I mean, why would I I had all these incredible people around like Pete Seeger and Woody Guthrie and Bob Dylan and Richard Farina and Tom Paxson and so on? So I didn't need to write any songs. But when he asked me, when he told me that he couldn't understand why I wasn't, I went home and wrote Since You've Asked, which was my very first song.
0: But when somebody like Leonard Cohen says to you, why aren't you writing your own songs? that must w- Was there a touch of the wake-up call about that?
2: Well, absolutely. And I did a wake-up call for him. After I wrote that song, I said to him, Leonard, you're going to have to start singing your own songs. He said, no, 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 I can't sing. I have a terrible voice. I said, you don't have a terrible voice. You ha- Your voice is um, unusual, but it's not terrible by any means. It's quite charming. And so I pushed him onto a stage at Town Hall in New York, and I said, you have to sing Suzanne. And he he did. He, he interrupted himself to fall apart. But then I came back out with him and we sang it together. And he got he understood from the audience. It was at Town Hall, mm-hmm. which was a big deal. It was a fabulous, huge crowd. And they just went crazy over him. And he 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 got it. He got that glimmer of understanding that he had to sing his own song.
0: Please tell me that he introduced it by looking you uh, square in the two eyes and saying, since you've asked, Judy,
2: let me sing sing a song for you. Absolutely.
0: (laughs) Well, listen, since he asked you and you did, why don't I play a little bit of Since You've Asked?
2: You've asked,
1: is all my time together
0: Since you've asked by Judy Collins their song and written by Judy Collins, in fact, because Leonard Cohen asked her to write that particular song. and um, how did he respond to you, Judy, when when he heard that song first?
2: Oh, well, he was thrilled, and I, I went on writing, and usually I send him whatever it was that I was writing. And he did the same for me. for the For the next few years, he would send me every few months. I would get a little tape in the mail with his songs on it. And uh, you know, I started recording. I recorded um, dress rehearsal rag, and then the story of Isaac and priests, and of course Suzanne. Hmm. So many Sisters of Mercy, and most recently, I recorded a song called Everybody Knows, which was one of his most his final songs and uh, so we were friends for all those years and i sang many of his songs and will continue to do so i mean he was a fabulous writer and we had a wonderful friendship
0: you must have a sense do you have any sense of him smiling down on you as as you give this complete album of your own oh
2: yes yeah i told him i sent up a message and said I finally did it. (laughs) Thanks for lending me your muse.
0: (laughs) (laughs) When you listen back to, when you listen to to Since You've Asked there, you know, from the the 1960s, what do you hear in yourself as you sing that song? I mean, you have the benefit of hindsight now. I'm sure you listen and have heard recordings of yourself many times over the years, but it's quite a distance to look back, even if you're only looking back hourly. What do you hear?
2: Well, first of all, I hear that the voice is the same in Since You've Asked as it is in Spellbound. And frankly, that's the most important thing that I know about what I do, is that there's a through line in terms of vocal, vocal health and of writing health. So these are things that I, are, I know are tremendous gifts, and you can't ever be too grateful for them.
0: Yeah, as I listened to Spellbound uh, over the past while, I I was marveling at the the quality of the voice and the clarity of the voice that it is as clear as it was, you know, sixty years ago. Um, do, do you do you have a some kind of regime that helps you look after your voice in some way?
2: Well, I have had I w- had the fortune in nineteen sixty five. I was having a lot of trouble. I was going out already. I was doing recordings. I was traveling and touring. As I, just as I do now, and I was losing my voice. And I was fortunate enough to find through Harry Belafonte's pianist and through some uh, friends of mine who ran an arts camp in Lenox, Massachusetts called Indian Hill, I found a, a teacher who I was able to study with, who I studied for 32 years with him. And he really taught me what to do. So that's where my fortune uh, held out. Mm.
0: Yeah, and, and it's about, well, it's about discipline. I'm guessing as well, it doesn't just happen all by itself. I'm sure there are things that you have to do on a, on a regular basis to keep it in 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 shape. You were you were with us on the programme, Judy, back in 2018. Again, that was in advance of your appearance at Tradfest that year. But since that time, of course, they, we've we've lost Stephen Sondheim and many people regard your own record, recording of Send in the Clowns as one of the, you know, if, if not the definitive version of the Sondheim song. Uh, what were your thoughts or what are your thoughts on him uh, having lost him just a couple of years back? Uh, has he been in your mind? Has he been uh, uh, in, in part of your performance in some ways?
2: Oh yes, I continue to do Send the Clowns but I also always from time to time I do another uh, of my favourites. I made an album in 2016 with orchestra of 12 of my favorites, including Sending the Clowns. Mm. But there are songs from a number of the shows, including Move On and "The Hat," uh, Finishing the Hat. So I'm always thinking about him. Also, I went to a memorial for him that he had planned, which was a couple of months ago at the Sondheim Theater in New York. And I think there must have been 15 people, including Steven Spielberg, who spoke for maybe five minutes, and then there was a lot of footage, personal footage. There was no there was no soundtrack music at all. These were memories of people who were close to him, and also his own choice of music other than his own, which was very moving, mm. because you, you heard a number of people spoke, uh, Jonathan Tunick, who... Orchestrated *Sending the Clowns* for me, and who orchestrated many of Sondheim's musicals, and uh, there were a couple of other other orchestrators and friends, old friends who had been with him for years. Unfortunately, Hal Prince has been gone for three or four years now, I think. So, but it was very moving. It was extremely personal, mm. and that was just kind of the finale that I needed to say goodbye and thank you so much to Stephen Sondheim.
0: In some ways, I suppose your album A Love Letter to Sondheim was part of that um, goodbye and thank you uh, as well, wasn't it? That's
2: right, absolutely.
0: You're playing at St Patrick's Cathedral on Saturday, the January the twenty eighth, as part of Tradfest. and I presume um, the spirit of your what did you call him Irish American rebel English father will be with you. <laughs> will be with you when you come to visit us. And um, the concert is you called the concert is called Big Hits and Spellbound. Now, if you were to do either oh, of good. either either of those, would make a concert either the big hits or Spellbound uh, the album itself. <laughs> Is, is it difficult to come up with, you know, you've so many big hits, you've such a long career, uh, it must be difficult to kind of whittle down the, the playlist to what you want. Do you go with a flow on the night or are you very, uh, have you your mind made up before you get there?
2: Well, I do make a set list and I put in a few of the chestnuts, so to speak. But I also choose new things and I'll, sh- I'll certainly sing probably three or four songs from Spellbound. And a couple of the older songs that I've written, maybe, maybe since you've asked, Hmm. but I, um, I try to cover the waterfront and do what I like and hopefully satisfy people with, with including both sides now and. And uh, perhaps uh, sending the clowns.
0: Yeah, well, people are in for for a real treat. That is for sure. I will finish up with a song, if if that's okay, uh, Judy. Another song from um, Spellbound. Why don't we tell me a little bit about when I was a girl in Colorado?
2: Oh, oh, oh! You know, I think that was probably the last song before recording that I wrote that made it to the album, and it's very reminiscent. I. People seem to like it a lot. It has a lot of longing in it, and I always think about Colorado. I don't live there. I live in New York. But I get to Colorado at least once a year, maybe three or four times, because I'll be doing shows there this year as well. And then I like to go and spend some time in the mountains for a week or so. Just to make sure, I know how that how it feels.
0: <laughs> and I guess if you want, if you can't make it physically to go there, you can just sing the song and go there in your imagination.
2: Well, you bet, and and believe me, I do.
0: Judy, thanks so much for being with us this evening. We'll finish up with "When I Was a Girl in Colorado." Privilege and a joy to speak with you.
2: Thank you. God bless. When I was a girl in Colorado. River Me little
0: flavour there of When I Was a Girl in Colorado from Judy Collins' album Spellbound. H. Judy will perform at St. Patrick's Cathedral on the evening of Saturday, January the 28th as part of Tradfest. Also playing the evening will be rising folk star Blondet from Castle Rock in Northern Ireland. Full details of that concert, everything happening at Tradfest on Tradfest tradfesttemplebar.com. And Arena will be broadcasting live from Tradfest over two nights on Monday, January the 23rd and Tuesday, January the 24th. 4th. Set in Auschwitz, John Boyne's novel The Boy in the Striped Pyjamas is a tale of friendship between two nine-year-old boys separated by barbed wire, the son of a Nazi official and a Jewish boy. The book, which received many accolades, including two Irish book awards, sold more than 11 million copies worldwide and was adapted for the screen in 2008 composer Noah Max was only a schoolboy when he came across John Boyne's novel in his school library and it made a huge impression on him. Over a decade later Noah has composed an opera based on this story now called A Child in Striped Pyjamas and delighted to have Noah join us on Arena this evening. Can you bring us back to that moment as a schoolboy Noah when you discovered the John Boyne novel and what your reaction to it was?
3: Of course, Sean, and, and thanks for having me on the show. It's lovely to speak to you about this. Um, so the book had just come out. I was that age. I remember seeing that cover in the library for the first time and knowing what it meant, because unlike most of my contemporaries, you know, as part of a you know the Jewish Friday night tradition, you meet as a family around the dinner table once a week and you have conversations about how the week's gone, important topics. No matter whether you're at each other's throats or things are going really well, uh, and I've become more and more grateful for that as, as life has gone on. Um, but we talked about the Holocaust, you know, because uh, we'd lost family members and th- this was a big issue for us. It, and I was very aware, even though I didn't know the particulars, that it was really, in a sense, a stroke of luck that any of us were here at all. Uh, and, and in the process of, of doing this opera, I've, I've read and spoken with so many survivors and, 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 you know, heard their stories, and you think, my God, how can there be all these? incredible, borderline unbelievable um, escape stories. And then you realise that, of course, that those without the escape stories are the ones who, who didn't make it. And that's a harrowing realisation. But none of that had happened for me yet. Uh, and I just recognised this cover uh, and it stirred something in me and I asked to take it out. The librarian told me I was too young, so I had to wait a few years. Um, but uh, when I read it, even though, as I say, I, I wasn't fully aware of the history, it struck a deep with me uh, and something in me as a young person knew that there was a deep symbolic truth to the book and that never left me and it was not Mm. until my late teens and early 20s that I started talking about it again with my mentor John Whitfield before he died and he wanted me to explore my family background and my Jewish uh, history in my music in some way Uh, and this book came up in conversation and at what
0: point, you know, as a, a now composer, a now musician, did you decide, I want to approach John Boyne's book and I want to approach it with the idea of making a piece of opera?
3: Well, the first time my mentor, John Whitfield, suggested it, I actually laughed. I thought that can't be done. Uh, and, th- you know, there are so many reasons why there aren't that many Holocaust operas. They're difficult to write. They're difficult to find stories for. They're difficult to rehearse. Um, But I sat down with it for a few years and I I really thought about it. And I thought opera is this, I mean, this is in a sense a self-consciously artificial medium and its strength is this depth of symbolic storytelling. Uh, And and through that you can give every individual listener the opportunity to connect with eternity in some sense. And uh, in that regard, opera surpasses all genres in terms of its emotional power. So all of a sudden I was going, Actually, if I were to write a piece about the Holocaust, it, it would need to be an opera and it would need to be a story that wasn't true as opposed to a story that was true. That was a really important point because true stories don't tend to be symbolic in that same sense. And John's story was. And so that's why I came to that.
0: So the idea of a fiction appealed to you more than telling the, the story, the, the true story or the story of an actual person who perished as part of the Holocaust.
3: Well, I mean, I thought about other stories like I, I think almost unarguably the greatest book of, of this kind of subgenre, if you like, of Holocaust literature and and, and testimony is Primo Levi, is um, If This is a Man. It's an extraordinary book. And I thought about, is there any way we could possibly stage this? And ultimately, I went, no, it's just too big. It's It's too... Um, sprawling. It's got too many important ideas in it. You can't do any single one of them justice through music. Whereas with John Boyne's book, um, first of all, because it's symbolism, you end up telling um, a story which is like a meta story, which applies to lots and lots of people who who died and also people who survived, as opposed to a singular tale. Um, That's the power of Mm. symbolism. That's what it does. Um, uh, But but, but also, I mean, it, it just... It just made sense to me that, that you know to, to, to go to a, a fictional story was, was, the thing, yeah. was the thing to do for this because it has that clarity of image at the centre of it, the, the barbed wire. That's one idea. And so much of writing a good piece is about finding one idea, the right idea, and really exposing it to the light and unpacking it and exploring it until you really leave no stone unturned. And so that's why so much of this opera is, is set at the fence itself.
0: It was Elie Wiesel who said that art cannot be made from the Holocaust. As a Jewish man, how how big a statement is that to address and to overcome, as you had to do to make this opera?
3: Well, it, it's a big statement and it was made by somebody who was in Auschwitz, so it shouldn't be taken lightly. It should be given the, the weight that it deserves. Um, however, I don't agree with Elie Wiesel on this particular point. And this is something I think we need to explore in terms of... so, so I think the approach to testimony is very clear. T- testimony is sacrosanct. Uh, and we need to have Holocaust educational organizations who teach the facts in a robust way. Uh, and we need people coming up through the school system to know what happened uh, and how it was done um, in order that we it, it never be repeated. That's just obvious. And so in order to do that, we need to, to, to be chapter and verse, really, really closely attend to those testimonies. However, as somebody incredibly close to the issue, I can see why Elie Wiesel wouldn't understand why seeing an opera about a fictional story set during the Holocaust would be useful for anyone. But but I would actually beg to differ with him on that uh, point. I think it's actually incredibly valuable for people who weren't there uh, to witness the, the the horror of it uh, and to experience that not only through mm. facts and figures, but through an artistic medium. I think you can get the point across much stronger and clearer through a symbolic narrative, through the arts, uh, in a way that reading pure facts and figures can't. I think that's why the book has been so successful. I mean, the success of the book is extraordinary. Whether or not you like it is beside the point. It, it's It's extraordinary that a children's book you know children don't tend Mm. to have have, you know of that age they haven't discovered their love of reading yet on the whole Uh, and yet it has sold in its millions as you said Uh, it's an extraordinary achievement um and and you know the reason for that is because it connects with people on an emotional level and despite some of you know what one might describe as the surface level inaccuracies there is something deep underneath it which is true Uh, and i think that you know Ultimately, for me, whether or not we make art about the Holocaust is a moot point because I'm an artist and I'm going to make art about stuff I care about. And the need to do this, you know, once I heard the call and it was calling me, I I was not at liberty to Ignore that,
0: yeah. You have used music from the Jewish liturgy as, I think, the basis for for the opera. Why that particular style of music and what has that brought to your own personal faith? That's
3: such a a wonderful... uh, An interesting question. I I mean, so so, I mean, the reason I draw on music from the Jewish liturgies is because I'm I'm very fortunate. I know it. I grew up with it. It's not a a repertory that is often heard in the concert hall. And it's something which slightly sets me apart, I suppose, from my um, musical contemporaries, be they composers or performers. They don't know this beautiful music. They haven't heard it. It hasn't been given uh, the airing that it deserves. I grew up as a teenager singing in. Uh, a small, it was a four-man synagogue choir, plus a chazan, which is like a cantor. So there were five of us, and we would stand there all day on the High Holy Days, just singing together, making the service more beautiful, more engaging uh, for those who had come to worship. And even though I didn't completely appreciate it then, that that language has been so important to me. It, it really formed the way I look at music, and, and it means I've got a slightly divergent view of things, because it's not, you know, so much of the classical music canon um flowed out of Christianity, you know, and and, uh, the the churches had a lot of money, and so that would would support composers. uh, And that's why we have so many wonderful religious masterpieces. No complaints there. Um, But my background is slightly different. So I wanted to explore that and in some sense, try to uh, do justice to it. I mean, on on a separate level, I think working on this project has brought me closer to my faith. It has shown me the importance of this inheritance I have um, you know, been so lucky to, to to receive from my ancestors who, on so many occasions, not just during the Holocaust, were so almost um, murdered and extinguished forever. I mean, it's so unlikely. It, it, it's nothing short of a, a miracle of biblical yeah. scale that the Jewish people are, are still alive and
0: with us. So, Well, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and ideas with us this evening, Noah. That's Noah Max and the premiere production of A Child in Striped Pajamas presented by Echo Ensemble takes place tomorrow the 11th and Thursday the 12th of January at the Cockpit Theatre in London. Both performances will be preceded by a live Q&A. Full details on thecockpit.org.uk. It's tough to be happy in tennis because every single week everyone loses but one person. Those are the words of top-ranked US player Taylor Fritz in the new Netflix documentary series Breakpoint. The makers of the series will be hoping to serve another ace with this their latest offering after the success of their documentary Formula One Drive to Survive. Breakpoint was filmed throughout the 2022 tennis season starting with the Australian at the Australian Open which was of course mired in the controversy around Novak Djokovic and his vaccine status. The series though makes a bit part player of the Serbian and chooses instead to tell the stories of the would be giant slayers and the players who aren't quite household names just yet, thanks to the dominance of the likes of Djokovic, Federer, Nadal, and of course Serena Williams. First five episodes land on Netflix January the 13th. Another five complete the series in June. Sinead Egan. How difficult it must have been for you, Sinead <laughs> to take time out and watch all five episodes of Breakpoint? I do for anything us. for
4: Arena. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> and nothing does to do with your you know mad tennis fan. However, <laughs> this could, I, I suppose, in some ways, I've, I've said Formula One Drive to Survive. This could be tennis Drive to Survive. Uh,
4: yes and no. I mean, I think fans of Formula One Drive to Survive will certainly recognise the setup here, which is there's an episode set at a major event, uh, a Grand Slam or a Masters one thousand tournament, and they choose to zone in on, on a particular player or players and build a story around their success or otherwise at that event. So in some cases though they jump at the chance mm. to focus in on the hometown hero. So in the first episode this is Nick Kyrgios at the Australian Open, Taylor Fritz at Indian Wells further on in the series and Paula Berdosa at the Madrid Open later as well. Uh, it's important to note as you say that the big three are spectres here yeah. Nadal, Federer and Djokovic. They're a presence but they're very much not the point. This is about the men and women who want to get to the top now yeah. and in my view that's a really excellent choice
0: The Maverick is the title that they give yes. to episode one and certainly that is what Nick Kyrgios is kind of the bad boy of tennis and boy does he know how to play the crowd he knows how to play the game certainly from my limited knowledge but he knows how to play the crowd even more so
4: He sure does and it should be said that on a good day he's a great player yeah. uh, he's he's a really strong opening figure here massive personality beautiful on court and very unorthodox in his approach to, to the tour he doesn't have a coach or a massive entourage of trainers or in hitting partners. It's just him, his new girlfriend mm-hmm. and his buddy manager, who's called Horse. <laughs> um, there's a really <laughs> funny moment when Horse has to explain the rules of tennis to Nick's girlfriend as they are sitting, to Nick's new girlfriend, yeah. as they're sitting on court uh, at his first round match. So we see his progress through the singles draw and then his progress through the doubles draw with his buddy, uh, Thanasi Kalkanakis. Um, so whether he means to or not, Nick Kyrgios really shows the the toll that this sport takes on a person and how relentless the tour is. He's, he's a gifted shot maker. Some would even say he's a genius, Sean. But um, there are very few tennis players who can honestly make that claim. Um, but he has lacked patience, drive and, oh, yeah. and, and frankly the conditioning to to, yeah. to be, get into the top 10 and stay there. And, and that episode really gives insight to it. I should say uh, Nick Kyrgios is a very controversial figure. He was charged with uh, assault of a former girlfriend um, in July of this year uh, so, uh, so maybe that will feature mm, after the initial in the scope series, of this series, yeah. and uh, he's due to appear to appear in court in February on those charges.
0: All right, let's have a listen to uh, how the series sounds because sure. obviously tennis has to be at the heart of it. You're not going to see a full game because you just wouldn't no. have time to do that. You're going to see like really rapid highlights. But let's have a listen to how you know this is the action of the tennis match, and you can really get a sense of what it looks like from the sound of it.
1: First game goes to Kerrios, he's off to a good start here.
0: Oh. Medvedev's really come out firing. He's under the pump here. So that's that's from the first yeah. episode. You, you get the sound of it there. They obviously said to the composer, listen to the sound of a tennis ball and go off and compose a piece of music that picks up on that.
4: Absolutely. I mean, they they, they stylized it to the max here, and they've they're really leaning into the grace and mm. beauty of elite tennis uh, when you slow it down and really examine the physicality of the players. And um, they certainly had cameras all over the court, and by the cha- by the looks of it, uh, mics as well. Um, but they're, and they've added this tension music and it changes the experience, Sean. And, you know, I have to say it's artful in places, it's very dramatic. Yeah. Um, I was reminded of that documentary I spoke to you about a few years ago called John McEnroe in the Realm of Perfection, which basically was a slow, well, it was all slow motion footage of John McEnroe at Roland Garros in 1984. And, you know, something that can be mesmerizing. Yeah, you know, yeah. it, this is more pacey, but equally beautiful. Yeah,
0: and mind you, Curious makes John McEnroe look like a kind of a <laughs> slightly naughty child as opposed to he a real does. bad boy. He, he's
4: Certainly holds it up to him, all right.
0: Now, um, uh, the, the focus clearly, episode one, which is the only one I've seen, is on Curious on and his pal, and it's a great dramatic story. Uh, hopefully, uh, further into the series we get to look at some of the great female tennis players Absolute, that there
4: are. Absolutely and this is a facet of the series that, that is a real strong point you know we're we're, we're we're not just talking about the men and you know this I think is somewhere where it will diverge from the Drive to Survive formula because I'm pretty sure that Drive to Survive can't do that. Mm. Um, the, the, it focuses in on three, three women in this first uh, uh, tranche of episodes Paula Badosa of Spain Mar- Maria Sakkari of Greece and Anz Jabour of uh, Tunisia and these three women really express the challenge of being a professional athlete and indeed a professional female athlete. They talk about the tough losses, the pressure and in the case of Paula Badotta, an ongoing battle of depression which she has faced in the case of Ans Jabour, the desire to have a family and the fact that, mm. you know, female tennis players have to choose to wait and that may not necessarily be what they want to do.
0: Yeah. Um, the Maria Sakkari though that is she yes. that's a fascinating story. It is
4: so Maria Sakkari is you know she's consistently in the top ten and she she but she's just not quite breaking through mm. and uh, and winning slams but she's kind of there or thereabouts and uh, so she has this uh, a reputation for uh, not for choking but for finding it hard to get into finals despite having an excellent game.
0: Let's have a listen to her kind of explaining or giving her version yes. of, <laughs> of what it means to lose a semifinal three times or just loads no of she times? so.
4: so so last year uh, in 2021, she was in the semi-final of the French Open, and she had match point, but she still lost the match.
0: Oh, right here Very she tough. is. Here she is dealing with that type of thing.
4: I played I think seven or eight semi-finals last year, and I was so struggling because I could see the finish line, and then I wouldn't win the match. My mind would go so far in the match that I just couldn't close it out. I was too excited. I was nearly there, but not there at the same time. And there are a lot of losses that hurt, even today, like the one last
1: year in Paris. The chances of Maria Zachary have just ebbed away here.
2: Joe, the match. Nothing that Maria Sakkari could do today. I lost that match from being match point up.
4: I just didn't know how to handle that situation.
0: Wow, Maria mm. Zachary of Greece there, um, talking about her that, that loss in the semi-final. Sinead Egan looking at Breakpoint, new Netflix series. Um, that's very honest.
4: It is, and I think that this is what this is a strength of this series. That you are, you know, you, you watch these matches, you see these uh, these these mm. scorelines turn on a dime, and you wonder how is this person feeling. And I mean, they they, they give very little in their after match interview, but here they've had time to digest it, and they're they're being very open. And yeah. I think that's really admirable.
0: Yeah, because I suppose in the post match interview, either they're is going on shock? to the next yeah. round and they yeah. can't talk about anything because yeah. they don't want to give their opponents something, or if they've lost, they kind of have to think about the next tournament, and they're dealing with the loss of. They do, yeah. and
4: and you know they have sponsors and supporters yeah. to keep yeah. in mind, you know. But you know this this series can be really gossipy oh, in I places. I've yeah. noticed
0: that the Guardian referred to it as a docu-soap. Indeed, now it isn't fictional, but there's a soapy element to it oh, for there sure. Is, there
4: is, and and I, I would recommend that there's there's a there's a uh, something that emerges in the final episode of the, of this tranche of episodes, the, mm. the Uncle Tony Derby, which was when um the Nadal's, Nadal's Uncle Tony, who is the architect of Rafa Nadal's career, uh, he's now coaching. And in, in, at this point in the series, he's coaching the Canadian prodigy Felix Ojeda Aliasim and. Oje Aliassim and Nadal meet in the round of 16 at Roland Garros. And Uncle Tony gives this really frank interview when he says, when he says Well, I want my nephew to win. And you're kind of thinking, Well, <laughs> what about Felix yeah. here? I mean, he's <laughs> paying he you, you. Yeah, know?
0: well, this guy's both, well, the blood is thicker than water. Indeed, isn't it? indeed. Was, what about the tennis? Do You know, it's beautifully shot and we don't yeah. get full games. Um, and you mentioned this almost balletic yeah. style that we see with some of the players. Do we get to know much about the tennis? Is that what it's about? In fact,
4: I mean, yes. I mean, no <laughs> is it's the not. answer. Yeah. It's it's d- does the sport actually matter? The sport in question, not really. It's it's this is the human story of the players. I was I was watching this with my husband mm. the other night, and I, I was like, "Is this Tennessee enough?" And he was like, "No, that's not the point. This is not about tennis. This is about the players." And once you get that into your head, it's really really yeah. good.
0: And I love that you refer to the fact that your husband is tennis adjacent. You clearly are tennis enmeshed. Very. I would, I would to say yeah, <laughs> Totally and absolutely. Um, part. So the first five. First January, five 30th,
4: chan- January thirteenth, and, and there'll be more episodes in June.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah, in and around. Wimbledon they know exactly so in and around Australia for the, the Australian Open yeah, for the first and then, five and then
4: Roland Garrison yeah, and Wimbledon for the yes, next they ones they know yeah. what
0: they're at those, mm-hmm. those Netflix people Sinead Egan there speaking to us about the uh, series Breakpoint the first five episodes of which will be available on Netflix from January the 13th five more to follow as Sinead said in June and that is our lot for this evening Liam Murphy and Amandine Pastor Divine researched Michelle Gibson was the broadcast coordinator and JB Doyle wasn't sad. I will talk to you oh no I won't talk to you Keshi. He will talk to you tomorrow night at seven and I will be back with you on Thursday. And Fake No Brain On will be with you after the news.